wanted to start this podcast to share hunting stories of my experiences and what I've done over the years. There's so much more that is involved in hunting than just pulling the trigger and killing an animal. We want to be inspirational, educational, but we also want to have a good time and teach you how to have a good time as well. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about Axis deer. So we had to get Marina Treese, and she goes by Axis Sustainability on Instagram. Maui has 11 of the 13 climate zones. The only two it doesn't have are Arctic and subarctic. So you can be in 85 degrees and sunny and white sand beaches on your toes, and you can go up to seven, 8,000 feet where some of the Axis deer and goats and pigs are and clouds roll in midday and it's in the 50s and it's you know lush grass and big trees and you can't believe that you're on the same island but if you're coming in may to july that's when the rut is i had a bit of experience within the last year or so actually calling animals in with the axis deer and you know that's an awesome experience welcome to hunting day with stephen robbins now for your host stephen robbins All right, guys and gals, welcome back to another episode of Hunting Day. And on this episode, we're going to be talking about Axis deer again. And we had such a really good hit and a lot of engagement on the first two part one, part two series that I did with Trey Rigby from Axis Addict. So we had to get Marina Treese and she goes by Axis Sustainability on Instagram. And we had to get her on because Me and her have had some really good and very interesting conversations through Instagram about axis deer hunting in Hawaii. So Marina, thank you for coming on. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. Um, Yeah, my name is Marina Treese and I'm a Pacific Northwest native. Um, I was born in Washington state and now I split time between Maui and Washington. Um, I'm self-employed. I've got a couple of businesses right now that I run uh, predominantly, um, as you well know, Access Sustainability, and that is for consulting work and natural resource management, wildlife management um, in Washington and also in Hawaii. And the second is Mountain Wanderers Designs, and that's my leather craftsmanship business um, and natural uh, materials business where basically I use a lot of the materials materials that I harvest from the deer that um, I acquire out in Hawaii and make materials with them to kind of promote sustainability and conservation and um, help teach people and engage for future generations. That's great. That is great. So Marina, you got to tell me how someone who grows up in the Pacific Northwest, how they end up in Hawaii. Yeah, that's that's a good question. Uh, you know, it's it's a funny thing. Growing up in, in a small little island, I guess that's part of it, number one, is I grew up on a tiny little island uh, in Washington. And so from one island to another island, ended up in Maui. Um, I kind of traveled around quite a bit, moved to some other states, Colorado and uh, Arizona and such as well, um, and Idaho. And then I ended up, one of my friends actually told me, ah, you know, you've been working really hard. You need to go take a vacation and just go, go to Maui. And I told her, I don't know. I don't know. I'd never been before. And she goes, ah, just go do it. So I came out for two weeks and I came back home and she looks at me and she goes, oh no, no, no. 
bought my one-way ticket and two weeks later packed up everything I owned and moved out to Maui. And that was about 12 years ago. <laughs> um, and uh, it's been very good to me, you know, and as, as uh, I've been told, you know, being out in the islands is either the islands take you in uh, or they chew you up and spit you out. And I feel very fortunate that um, I've had a lot of amazing uh, experiences and met some incredible people out there and um, the islands continue to um, be an absolute gift in my life. Yeah, no, that's great. So let's talk about the sustainability because every time I hear about axis deer in Hawaii, you, it's, you know, they're a non-native invasive species. And so um, I know there's a large conservation effort as far as trying to help balance the the island out with the deer versus the native animals there and so what all um what all efforts are going into that yeah that's actually uh you know that's a quite a dynamic topic um because Hawaii is home to many, many endangered species and also a lot of endemic species that are only found out there. With that being said, uh, there are very few um, large mammals that are actually in native, you know, really the only one is the Hawaiian monk seal. Um, but beyond that, you know, the deer, the goats and the pigs um, are all invasive species. With that being said, um, they are an essential food source for many people on the islands. So it's a very interesting conversation to have with people about sustainability, um, you know, and kind of how I got into it actually as well was, you know, food security, number one, um, the islands right now, currently, if you cut off supplies from all the cargo ships and stuff that come in, you have about five days worth of supplies for, you know, food and resources for the people that are there. And so that's uh, puts a lot of pressure to try and figure out where your food's going to come from. Yes, it um, does. Yeah. Yeah. The second piece of it is, uh, you know, being that you're in an island that's geographically isolated, um, you know, you're going to have carrying capacities for animals out there. So in 1957, um, originally is when the deer were introduced to Maui. They'd been brought over to other islands, but introduced to Maui. And there were 12 deer introduced at that point. Um, and the environment is very conducive to their growth. You know, as you know, they're native to India and Nepal, um, you know, and evolved to kind of get away from tigers. And so yeah. being in a, in a place where they didn't have predators, they proliferated. And being that they can also have, um, you know, multiple fawns a year uh, with the shorter gestation period, these deer just took off. So now in its estimate, I mean, you know, the, the estimates are continuing to grow, but it's at least 50 to 70,000 currently, um, you know, in basically, you know, 70 years, it's not that long. And so now it's kind of come to a place of, all right, what does it look like to uh, have some discussions, not only about sustainability, but regeneration and conservation efforts in order to, to manage the populations while understanding that, um, you know, as with some places where they do invasive species management, complete eradication isn't the answer either uh, because people rely on the deer um, or, you know, the animals in general. But, uh, you know, I think right now there are a few different projects that are going on. Um, one of the ones that uh, I'm specifically working on is increasing landowner access for um, 
hunters to be able to go on private land to be able to hunt axis deer out in Maui. There are a few public land places. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to, to access them and or, you know, get some, um, you know, real time in the mountain to be able to actually invest what's needed. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so that makes it a little bit more difficult. Uh, but in the deer are smart, you know, a lot of them will go to private land because they know that they're safe. Um, you know, but that's a lot about relationships. It's about creating relationships where people trust you, where you're talking liability, where you're talking ethics, et cetera. And, you know, we can get into that here in a bit as well, but that's part of it. Another part of it is, um, you know, really increasing the native and endemic restoration that's going on, that's protecting the watersheds, that's uh, doing work to reintroduce a lot of these native species. There's a lot of propagation um, that goes on. There's some really cool projects, one of which is called Oahi, and I've kind of, um, you know, been a part of that on and off for, uh, uh, you know, quite a few years, but they have several pieces, large swaths of acreage up in the mountains of Haleakala, the summit being at about 10,000 feet, uh, the largest inactive volcano in the world. And um, on that, those slopes, they've actually done a lot of fencing because fencing seems to be the, you know, the big thing that helped keep out these invasive species. And they planted a lot of natives. And in doing so, it brings back all these forest birds and native grasses, etc., which kind of helps do a lot of sustainability stuff. So that's one of the parts of the, the conservation movement out there is, you know, being able to keep areas deer goat pig free um, so that you can protect those natives and another part of it would be along the lines of you know the food security part of it which is promoting use of all different parts of the animal no yeah absolutely that's you know if you can get people behind once they harvest using as much usable resources of that animal then i think that goes a long way as well versus just killing an animal and pulling the back straps out of it. Yep. Yep. And maybe that's just something that you, we see more of here on the mainland because we have so many options. And I mean, that's nothing that I've ever done, but I do know people that, Oh yeah, I only keep the back straps and everything else goes in the pile out back. And I'm like, man, that animal, you know, you you took that animal's life and that's all you took from it. That doesn't seem very resourceful and uh very useful so i do like what you just said though is you know educating people on how to use as much of the animal as they can yeah yeah i think you know it's um it's a interesting thought process too because you know i mean you start out and you i mean i didn't know what i was doing when i first began i didn't you know i knew that if i'm gonna harvest an animal you know i'm gonna take out like their organs and stuff and i'll eat the heart and you know eat parts of the liver and save that for dog stuff and the you know call fat around the organs works great for being around ground meat venison's a very lean meat in general so if you can use that call fat from around the organs it makes awesome meatballs um and uh you know, also tanning the hide. And, you know, the first couple that I did, I didn't really know what I was doing, but you you learn. And as you're doing it, you realize that each of these animals has a lot uh, to it, you know, but it takes time. It's sweat equity, right? Yeah. You're going to put it in. You just, you got to do that. And, and like you said, there are definitely people out in the islands as well that, um, you know, are kind of just uh, selective harvesting the like different parts of meat and 
predominantly what I've heard in terms of why people are doing that is they're like, there are so many deer, we can just go out and get more, you know? And, and on the mainland, I'm like, man, you're lucky if you draw like one tag. And then if you, you know, really lucky, you get a second deer tag or, you get, you know, yeah. they're, they're just, there's, it's a free for all basically. And so, you know, I think sometimes people don't necessarily realize as much that even though there are a lot of them right now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's an unlimited resource. Right. For sure. For sure. So in addition to all the axis deer that are out there and you'd mentioned goats, you know, feral goats and feral pigs. And so, I mean, that's gotta be, it's almost like if a husband and wife ever wanted to go on a vacation, that's the place to go. Right. Um, me and April talk about it all the time. She loves to hunt, but she says, if I take her to Hawaii, she'll go to the beach and I, I can go hunting. And I think that's like a win-win. And, you know, leading up to this, I'm starting to wonder why we've never, never done this. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a good, it's a good gig. It's, you know, it's an excellent thing for, you know, for a partnership. And it's amazing to be able to have that ability to, to split time in different climates. You know, Maui has 11 of the 13 climate zones. The only two it doesn't have are Arctic and subarctic. So you can be in 85 degrees and sunny and white sand beaches on your toes. And you can go up to seven, 8,000 feet where some of the axis deer and goats and pigs are. And, um, you know, the clouds roll in midday and it's in the fifties and it's, you know, lush grass and big trees. And you can't believe that you're on the same island. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So once you got out to Hawaii and I know that you're, you know, predominantly an archery hunter, what was it? that set you know hunting there versus hunting back in washington apart or maybe maybe there wasn't anything at all but is it more difficult to uh, archery hunt because i know axis deer are very oh leery and you know they're they typically are in a herd so you got not just one set of eyes but all of the eyes and all the noses and all the ears to compete with but you know as an archery hunter what are some of the things that you face out there yeah um, you know, when I first got into hunting in general, um, I've actually only been kind of maybe a late onset hunter. I've only been hunting about 10 years or so. Uh, currently, I mean, I grew up fishing and crabbing and things like that, but really into big game hunting, it's, it's only been in the last 10 years or so. And, uh, when I first kind of got into it, it was because I really enjoyed sitting out in the woods and any time spent out in nature is just such a gift. And, um, and, you know, the quieter that you are, the more that you get to see. And so with the axis deer, um, you know, I, when I first learned I had, I did have help. I got, um, you know, a partner that put a bow in my hand and, um, kind of taught me some of the nuanced pieces with that being said, some of it was tree stand hunting and, um, you know, it was making, having a lot of deer make you initially. And especially with those axis deer, a lot of does, especially, <laughs> um, oh, yeah. they seemed, <laughs> they seem to have those eyes and ears in the nose and they start doing that barking and, uh, you know, okay, well, that was that moment, but you know, what ended up happening is, it kind of set this tenacity in me to, to sit and, okay, so I did this and this worked, or I did this piece and this didn't work. And for me, it ended up being number one, being very, very quiet, you know, a lot of, um, you know, still hunting and, or, 
you know, working with the elements. So especially with the axis deer, um, being downwind, number one, like they, you know, anything that they can smell they're they're just going to remove themselves from the situation. So even if they don't know that's where I was, you know, they're like, ah, something's off. So doing that. And number two would be playing the wind. Maui is amazing because we get trade winds that come through quite a bit and the winds switch in the mornings and in the afternoons. And so I kind of would learn like where the winds were going to be at what time of day. And I would come in with the wind coming into my face and that made a huge difference too, because I would move when the wind moves and stop when the wind stops. So the trees around me are all moving around. And so the deer have a very hard time tracking on anything that's moving at that time versus if I'm moving when everything's quiet. Um, so that definitely helped provide quite a bit of success as well. Uh, being above them, I think, you know, a lot of above or below, you know, being kind of an eye level has been a bit harder. I have harvested that way, but it's definitely harder because your movement is, you know, very in line with where they're standing. And so the last several that I've harvested were kind of above cliff edges, like uh, maybe, I don't know, 20 yards or so above them and kind of looking down. And so they, I'm not even in their line of sight and, or the smell, um, and I think, you know, one of the things that makes them a lot more difficult too, is in my experience, basically almost every single one has jumped the string. And so you account for that, you know, with archery, you have a couple of choices, right? For me, it ends up being, I try to be quieter and getting closer. Um, the other part is you can, you know, aim a little bit low, knowing that they're going to duck before they jump and or spin, um, you know, and, and I think that's been different than some of the mainland, you know, experiences that I've had with that understanding. I definitely have the most experience with the axis deer. And so it's been kind of learning with them. Okay. If, if I'm above them and I've got a, you know, 20 yard shot, I'm almost on my 10 yard, you know, like split the difference yeah. with that jump that they're going to do, um, you know, on the string. And, and they also like, you know, behavior wise, like you were saying, is they're more closely related to elk than deer. And so that herd mentality is a big deal. And, um, you know, if you get those does coming in and, you know, especially the lead doe that's kind of watching and really being observant of things, uh, you know, sometimes it's like best to harvest that one because then that kind of helps like, you know, calm the herd down a little bit and not have as much of an alert to you. (laughs) Yeah. I I got busted big time. We were hunting in uh, around Kerrville, Texas, and I hadn't really hunted axis deer a whole lot up to this point, but they were quickly becoming one of my favorite animals. And at the time, the most challenging, and I'll back that up. They, they still are the most challenging deer that I've ever hunted. And we had what I would consider probably 40 to 50 head herd coming in and that lead doe, she picked us off, which I mean, <laughs> I, I shared the yeah. story previously and, uh, we weren't brushed in very well because we were in a gravel pit <laughs> and, uh, we were, um, in a pop-up ground blind and we were sitting about a hundred yards from where they entered the gravel pit and they would circle the pit and go down into the green field and eat in the evenings. And so we thought we'd get them cut off there and, uh, no, nah, they, they quickly, they quickly picked us out and then they went the long way, you know? So, um, and I've hunted, uh, now, well, I've hunted axis deer since 2015. 
that was my first trip to Texas. And up to that point, I'd never even heard of them. We, we went on a hunting trip for work and it was uh, one of those things where I seen the first axis deer and I looked at my guide and I'm like, you got some really big fawns down here. And he's like, uh, that's not a fawn. That's an axis deer. <laughs> and so I really like, it intrigued me so much that, uh, you know, I finished my whitetail hunt there, but I'm like, let's hunt axis deer. And I want to mm-hmm. learn more about these animals. And they've intrigued me ever since. And I went on a four year quest. It wasn't until 2019. I hunted axis deer four years in a row. I missed two big ones. I got buck fever. I'm, you know, it was one of those things where um, I'm not a trophy hunter by any stretch of the imagination, but when I set out to kill an axis deer, I wanted it to be very memorable in a sense of a yeah, trophy. Yeah. And uh, I had plenty of opportunities to kill smaller bucks and plenty of does, but I was holding out for that 32 to 33 inch, you know, yep. big, what I would consider, you know, a, a world class and uh my first deer was a 34 and a half inch and uh, I was very, awesome. very happy. And um, April's first was a 35 and a half and she reminds me pretty much every day. <laughs> and so um, she's a, uh, we're competitive <laughs> and it's yeah. awesome, but uh, I, I plan on killing the bigger Hawaii axis deer mm-hmm. so that I've got mm-hmm. that one, you know, earmarked. So when that day comes, I'm taking the belt back. I'll be the champion. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> oh, it's true. Yeah. There are some beautiful deer out there too. They are amazing. And so like, it's really cool to hear that Maui has them. Now, in a sense, like it's exciting that Hawaii has access to deer. But in the other sense, it's like from the devastation and destruction that they cause. So it's like, like we were talking about earlier, trying to find that balance for the wildlife out there. And so being able to be a part of that. I think that's really amazing. Your efforts and, you know, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, they can, you know, they'll be able to look back and say, you know, Marina was a part of this and being able to kind of cement your place in history in a sense out there. I think that's amazing. And because of that though, being sustainable and making it sustainable generations to come will be able to go there hunt people that are native to there they'll be able to um, access that resource for food and everything so i applaud your efforts out there and i think you're making an impact so that's really cool thank you thank you yeah it's been um you know it's been quite the journey uh to get to this place and it's so good to talk to other people that uh, not only are passionate about, you know, hunting in general and, and food security for it, but also, you know, the understanding the, the backside behind it and, you know, what it means to take care of the land that's going to perpetuate these things for the future and for future generations. And, uh, you know, I mean, it makes me think of, uh, you know, childhood movie when I was growing up called Fern Gully and in the book or in the movie, you know, at the end of it, they say for our children and our children's children. And I think that that's what a lot of this is about is, you know, not only, um, you know, hunting because it's something that you're passionate about and that you believe in, um, you know, but also creating longevity for all 
all of those generations that are to come and, you know, what does that look like? And, you know, I think a lot of it, like you were talking about earlier, you know, you know, with your wife and, and such getting out there as well is, you know, it's instilling passion. It's something that, you know, you believe in and every hunt that you go on, you have these experiences and you learn things and, you know, each animal will teach you something, you know, and you're, you're talking about like going and sitting and took you a while to harvest. Like that was my experience too. I mean, it was two and a half years of sitting um, before I harvested my first animal. And it actually had, had up until the day that I got him. And of course it's the biggest one I've had to date as well. Um, but when I got him it was my first time solo hunting. Um, I went in and I learned and learned and learned for a long time. And then I went, Oh, I'm going to go in just today and see, you know, we'd set up this ground blind, this and that, and went in and here comes this deer, you know, by himself. And I went, Oh my gosh, okay. This is that moment. And I think every hunter in general, um, you know, is an especially knows, and especially with archery, uh, you know, when that harvest happens, it's that animal like gives its life to you. You know, there's like all of the pieces align, all of the things come together. And, and it's just like this, you know, it's incredible experience of, of being able to do that. And, you know, the, the hunt itself is one thing. And then processing and being able to enjoy it for however many months afterwards is is just an absolute treat that's one of my favorite things about hunting and especially with my kids is ava's been around she's killed you know she's nine years old and she's killed multiple animals you know upwards of 20 plus big game animals and all across the u.s as of now you know and watching her develop that passion for not just the hunt i mean she loves to go scout she loves to put up the ground blinds she wants to tree stand hunt and i got her a harness for this year and so we're gonna we're gonna play with that with a ladder stand and you know i I run a lifeline system so she'll be attached to a rope the entire time safely and so we're gonna experiment with that and uh we uh but like her involvement from the start to the end is, is amazing because after she's killed an animal, she wants to be there while we're, while we're field dressing it. She wants to see one. She wants to see where her shot was, you know, confirm that she hit where she was aiming. And two, she's just like, it's really cool. I don't know. Like as a kid, I know that like we're supposed to let them go be kids and to go play with toys and be outside and do all these different things that, aren't necessarily around hunting but the education that she has you know gained from being uh, a hunter and uh, i call her killer barbie because she's still like she's a <laughs> she was just in a beauty pageant not long ago and you know she's she's a girly girl she loves princesses and you know playing dress up and things like that but um she is like she could tell you the heart the lungs the the intestines and all the different things about animals and their makeup and she's gotten this you know i don't know desire to to do all the things from start to finish and then when it comes to you know hoisting them up with the tractor she's right there with them and uh you know she loves being able to pull on the hide and it's just all about it the only thing that i don't let her do currently is actually the butchering process only because i don't want to be responsible for her losing any fingers or fingertips <laughs> right now so but she's there she she's she's right there with me you know from grinding up the burger and you know cutting the steaks and 
it's uh she's right there now zoe on the other hand she's not as much into the field dressing part but into everything else and so mm-hmm. she's mm-hmm. getting there but yeah it's uh to have like my passion pour over into them and then to see their passion ignite and you know it's I think any parent wants to see their kids do and like the things that they do and like, but you never really force it upon them because you want them to still be their own people. But to see them take the lifestyle that we choose to live and run with it is really cool. And now that we're doing like not just the whitetails, but we are, we go access deer hunting a lot just about every year or multiple times a year we go to Texas and, Fingers crossed, we're going to be going to Hawaii soon now. So, absolutely. <laughs> but, uh, so would when you're access to your hunting, do you run into the feral pigs and feral goats often, or is that like they're kind of in different areas? Yeah, I actually, um, you know, it depends on the areas of the island that you hunt. Um, but there is a lot of crossover. So one of the private land areas that I hunt on Maui, uh, predominantly only had deer, um, initially. And now maybe within the last couple of years, there have been pigs starting to show up in the area. Um, and the way that those resources are, you know, is, is because they're invasive. I mean, with the deer, especially the deer is the hunting is, as many as you can take every day, 365 days a year, basically, you know, bucks, does, and fawns, um, you know, whatever people want, they're, they're welcome to take. Um, with that being said, um, you know, I think at, like for sustainability wise, it's a, it's an advantageous thing to, you know, look at some of those herd dynamics and kind of perpetuate it. So I'm not really into taking up the fawns myself, so to speak, right. um, you know, for population control, but you know, if I have an opportunity on a doe that doesn't have a fawn with them, that's, you know, all fair game and the pigs, um, you know, they have uh, seasoned, well, they have days on the public land. On private land, people can come at any point and do it. But on public land, they have mostly weekends for pigs. Um, but those are all in the area of the upper mountain public land where they have deer, goats, and pigs. Okay. And they're all in that same area. And actually, when I was just with a couple of my girlfriends a couple of weeks ago, when we were up there, we saw all three in one day. Uh, and it was just like, when the goats were coming in, the pigs were moving, we're just like, oh my gosh, what is happening? All of the pieces are <laughs> <laughs> happening all at one time. Um, you know, but they, it's really interesting to watch them interact because they, you know, really, they just kind of observe each other. They're not, you know, necessarily necessarily even competing as much for the same resources you know the deer are browsers they eat all sorts of different stuff um you know and the same with the goats but they seem to have quite a bit of um you know forage up there especially in the mountains and the pigs being a lot of them being rooting pigs you know they're going for a lot of the grubs and such so the deer aren't really as impacted by that either Okay. Now, how difficult or how easy is it for someone that's a non-resident that would want to go out there and go hunting? 
Yeah, it's actually very, um, it's actually very doable. So really the biggest things that you have to do is they're on the DOFA website. Um, they have, uh, for the Hawaii hunting for the DLNR, they have an exemption form that you fill out if you're an out-of-state resident. It's a very easy form. Um, you submit it to them and they're actually very pr- prompt about getting it back to you once you get your exemption form. It's basically for hunter's ed that's out of state. Uh, once you get that um, exemption form, then you're able to go purchase your in-state license. Um, now, in-state license, this is another part that's very advantageous and makes it desirable to want to come out to the Hawaiian Islands, is that your out-of-state hunting license is around $100, I believe. And that's not even per tag. That's just total. So you can hunt a lot of animals with that. That's very advantageous. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, you go, that's cheaper than my Virginia resident, like all inclusive. So that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That in-state, you know, if you're a resident in there, it's, I mean, it's very inexpensive, but even that, you know, a lot of it goes to conservation stamps and some of the, um, you know, giving back components. And so what they do is they have you get your license and then in the public land areas, uh, they have some hunter check-in stations where you just go, you put your hunting license number, you put your uh, license plate number from your vehicle and you can go to a bunch of different areas, um, you know, that are, that are up the mountain specifically for the deer uh you know i guess that's kind of more what i target but there are other hunting units as well um that are on the island that are specifically for pigs like on the north shore specifically uh there's a lot more activity with just pigs if you're kind of on the um you know the south side or the east side you end up being uh more deer and then you kind of get the goats especially up in the higher elevations okay that's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. Me and my friends, I'm even thinking like possibly like a guy's DIY camping trip. Or is that something that you're allowed to do on the mountains is actually go out and camp? Uh, so the way that they work it right now is that um, there isn't public land camping overnight camping in the hunting units specifically. There are surrounding areas that you can get reservations and you can be able to go in to stay in camp, um, you know, in the hunting units, because those are, those are actually set to be rifle and um, archery. Uh, you know, they basically have hours where people come in. I think the gates open up around 5 AM and then they close around 9 PM at night. Um, you know, but if you're coming in, in May to July, that's when the rut is. And it's an incredible experience. You know, I've had a bit of experience within the last year or so actually calling animals in with the axis deer. And that's, a you know, that's an awesome experience and it would be a great thing for a, for a guy's trip to be able to do as well. That is, that's amazing. And so we got to talk about this. I didn't know, like I've heard axis deer, they're extremely vocal. Typically though, for me, my experience has always been when they've alerted every other deer in the forest that I'm there. So <laughs> yeah. I'm definitely curious about how calling an axis deer, like walk me through this. Yeah. So uh, actually about two years ago, um, and this is kind of what 
led me this this year, I guess, backing up, but this is what led me this year to, to recognizing a bit of different behavior in the deer um, than I've previously experienced. Normally, I when I plan my summer trips, I go out around the middle end of May. And by that point, it's starting to heat up for the rut. And in from what I've uh, you know done for most of my archery stuff, I end up most of the time hearing the deer before I even see them, you know, and most of that isn't even them calling, it's snorting and stomping. And, you know, you can hear them walking through the brush and, you know, things like that. I'm like, okay, the deer are coming in. I can hear them now, Um, you know, because they blend in so well. (laughs) Um, But when the rut starts to come, you know, the barking that you hear from the does is that very high pitched, like poo, poo, poo sound. Yeah. Right. But when the bucks roar, it's almost like, a cross between like an elk and a red stag or something it's it's a similar sound to that bark but it's very wheezy it's like a whoo 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 sound and they normally do it in bursts so you'll get the big bucks will do probably like five in a row and it's very throaty and you can tell you know a lot of times even if you like before they start uh, roaring you can see them raking on the trees and you'll look at this you know the the background behind them and the trees around them start shaking you know and they're thrashing and thrashing and then they start doing that roar and then you'll hear one you know a half a mile the other direction kind of going no wait this is my territory so i actually went in about two years ago and i went in and i could tell the rut was just in full effect at this point i was seeing number one i was seeing rubs everywhere um you know and axis deer in in hawaii you know the rut being made in july like for the most part, that's when you're going to see most of the, you know, extensive rubs. Not a lot of trees. They have a lot of wattle trees out there, W-A-T-T-L-E, and they get this real red bark when they um, get rubbed on. And so a lot of the deer, actually, their racks are really pretty because that's the, that's the like tree bark that gets into them. And so I was, you know, two years ago, I'm walking through and there's just almost every other tree I'm seeing, you know, rubs and thrashes and branches broken and, you know, you can see scrape marks and all this and that. So you're like, okay, they're in here, they're in here. And then I hear down this gulch, I hear this buck roaring and, and I go, you know, let's just like, see, they have a few calls out there on the market that are for axis deer specifically, but I've never used the calls. I just used my voice. And so I hid kind of underneath these cactus because there's a lot of cactus in the area too. And the deer actually like eat all of the cactus from the underside. And so they lay in there when it gets really hot during the day. And so I kind of was able to get under these cactus and I found a tree that looked real similar to the ones that they rake on. And I took a rock and I started raking on the tree and making all sorts of crazy noise. And then I did the roar and I did, you know, three or four of them, not enough to be like, I'm the biggest one here, but enough to be like, this might be something, you know, to concern about. And I didn't even finish, not even five seconds after I finished, he starts lighting back up down the gulch again. And I was like, okay. And so I did it one more time and thrashed all those trees and made all this noise. And I'll be, if that buck doesn't come walking right down the gulch and he was just, you could tell he was rutted out and he was just like, I am the big man on campus here. Like this is my territory and it's amazing, you know? And so then I just sat quiet and I just let him come in. I made all my sounds and everything. And then once he got, you know, within a 150 yards or so, I just went and I like posted up in my little spot and I sat there and I waited. And it's just like, it's such a cool experience to see them, um, you know, in the rut too, 
because their behavior is so much different instead of traveling all with the herds like they're actually more solo as well you know my first year that i ever harvested was solo he was walking up a gulch by himself and um you know i was like oh okay well this works you know and and that deer came in and he was solo um you know the the most recent uh deer that i've harvested have been in herds um but uh you know i think like when you're when you're like thinking about what time of year to be coming it's amazing to kind of figure out like what they're doing differently and this year especially was a much different experience you know that year i came in and they were fully heated up and everything was going this year i came in same property same area and it was like a nursery it was all does and fawns and no bucks to be seen, no rubs on anything. I'm like, what is going on? It's the end of May. Like this is normally their time. And I realized it was asking around and everybody was saying that it had been a really wet winter. And so they'd had a lot more rain and a lot more forage. And so the deer were really spread out and they were getting big, you know, they just were getting healthy and eating everything that they could. And so it took about two and a half weeks for them to actually start coming back through again. And then the rut was kind of starting to heat up, but you know, what I noticed this trip, which was the first, um, you know, real experience that I had with this is, uh, a lot less like big bucks and more kind of scraggle ones or like smaller ones that, um, you know, we're just, it's like when the season first starts, you know, they're kind of, they're still with the herds. And so I ended up, you know, going conservation wise for harvesting one of those as opposed to and kind of leaving the big herd buck to be able to reproduce when i did come across them i found one one herd on the day that i harvested um that had a big buck in it and he was beautiful i mean it would have been amazing you know animal to harvest but i looked at it and i was like that's the only one that i've seen in a few weeks of being out here not to say that they aren't because they are yeah but you know it was the only one that i really saw and so i saw this other this other buck that had had a weird kicker on one of his brow tines and um you know he just looked at he looked a little bit like his rack was a little bit more haggard and i was like ah well you know maybe it's genetics maybe it's environmental i'm not sure but he provided the shot and i harvested him he didn't even go 20 yards and i ended up finding that he had a bullet in his neck and that's like why his rack was the way that it was is that he actually yeah he had a like bullet pulley in his neck so they're crazy animals they're incredibly resilient and it's really cool to call them in and it's just like it gets you really cranked to be able to be out there and spend time with them (laughs) that is awesome well i'll tell you what when we come out or me and april will get with you and we'll try to link up to where we can go out with you and absolutely i want to i want to experience this access calling and it might be something that we can incorporate next time we go to texas as well because that's yeah that's amazing um yeah, you know, you it works. It works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we know that they fight. We know that they're vocal. I've just never seen anyone, you know, use that approach. I've I've seen it mm-hmm. for deer. I've seen it for elk. I've seen it for whitetail, for predator hunting, turkey hunting. But so mm-hmm. why wouldn't it work, right? So this yeah, is really cool. Yeah. I'm happy to take you guys out too. I, you know, I have my guiding license as well. And, um, you know, I think a lot of the conservation side of it is I just, I want to take people out and, and teach them. I teach them about the plants, teach them about the animals, teach them about the mountain, teach them about, you know, the things in Maui that I've learned and vice versa. Like every experience that I can to, to learn from other people as well as, you know, is such a treat. And it's been amazing to, you know, cross paths with you guys as well. And, you know, maybe I end up coming out and doing some hunting with you guys too one of these days. That would be awesome. 
awesome. We get you down to Texas and yeah. you know, kind of see the two different environments that they live in because Texas is, you know, it's, it has a beauty to its own, but it's definitely not Hawaii. Right. And, uh, the hill country, it's, it's beautiful. Um, but then as you go further west of the hill country, you get more into like the desert, you know, the rocky cliffy areas and, uh, they thrive out there as well. So mm-hmm. I think it would be really cool to, for you to experience hunting them in Texas and then us to experience hunting them in Hawaii and, um, kind of compare like what's, you know, what's the difference in their behaviors in one place versus the other. If there are any differences, they could be the same. I mean, so. Yeah. It's really cool. So, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to this. Absolutely. Sounds like a, sounds like a great trip, and I look forward to, to having you guys come out and spending some time getting after these amazing deer and learning some cool things and doing some, uh, you know, rad uh, experiences out in the islands. Absolutely. Now, Marina, if people wanted to reach out to you on social media, what would be the best way to do so? Uh, yeah, the, the two places to find me, um, would be on Instagram at axis sustainability. And the other would be at mountain.wanderess.designs. And, uh, with axis sustainability, it's axis underscore sustainability. And, um, I look forward to, to chatting with anybody who has any questions or would like to come out to Hawaii or learn more. Um, you know, it's, it's always an amazing experience to connect with like-minded people. And I really appreciate you having uh, me on and giving me the opportunity to talk about things that we really care about. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I know that anybody that's ever wanted to go to Hawaii that's listening to this or anyone that's ever hunted Axis or ever wanted to hunt Axis in Hawaii, Um, this has brought a lot of value and to understand like what's happening on the islands with the, with the deer, with the goats, with the pigs and the efforts that's going into sustaining them, but also keeping them from overtaking endangered and native animals. So this is really cool. I'm glad to have you on. We've had a really fun time here and, uh, I definitely look forward to having you back and talk more about the island itself and not necessarily just the axis but the the island and what all it has to offer so so thanks for being on of course thank you so much and yeah i look forward to having you guys out and um you know any questions you have or you know any follow-up please feel free to reach out and um i'm really excited to, to keep doing these pieces and to keep uh you know learning from everybody around me absolutely And to all of our listeners, we just want to say thank you for tuning in again this week and for all your continued love and support. As always, keep hunting and keep doing what God calls you to do. Thank you for listening to Hunting Day with Stephen Robbins. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe. If you'd like to follow, you can find Stephen on Instagram at Stephen Hunt Day and Facebook at Stephen Robbins HD. If you'd like to reach Stephen, you can email him at stephen.huntingday at gmail.com.